0: Galatians 5, we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we find ourselves in chapter 5. The title of our sermon is, Is Christ of Advantage to You? And while your bulletins say otherwise, and much to the chagrin of those who help me prepare worship each month, I love you, I'm thankful for you, but I got into this a bit, and Decided we weren't going to go as far as I first assumed. So we are going to look at verses 1 through 6 instead of 1 through 12 this morning. And next time we gather, we will pick up 7 through 12. So Galatians 5, 1 through 6. Our key words for our worshipers and training are advantage, firm, and slavery. Now, at the Kennecott home these days, we are very excited about a little friend we have that my oldest daughter, Eva, caught and named Fuzzy. Fuzzy is currently residing in a critter cage that is sitting on our windowsill in our kitchen. He is a native resident of Paducah, Kentucky, and was gathered up and displaced from his home when we were visiting my parents a few weeks ago. Fuzzy has done exactly what the book The Very Hungry Caterpillar said he would do. He ate, he grew, and he is currently wrapped up in a warm cocoon on a leaf that he made one night while we slept. We keep waiting, we keep watching because we know what comes next. Fuzzy should become a beautiful butterfly as long as he has survived the various tossings and tumblings of regular investigation that he has endured over the last few weeks. Now, I wonder, do you know how this happens? Do you have any idea how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly? It's like the world's greatest costume change into the cocoon as one thing, and out something completely different. It's called metamorphosis. We've been investigating the process a bit, because I didn't know a whole lot about it, and I learned for the first time that when a caterpillar forms the silk cocoon around itself, it actually digests itself and uses enzymes that dissolve all of its tissues. So inside, a fully-formed cocoon is actually a sort of caterpillar soup for a time. In all that digesting and enzyming, cells emerge in the protein-rich soup all around them that forms the parts that are necessary for an adult butterfly to develop through rapid cell division. And when all that's complete, in about two weeks' time, if everything works properly, A butterfly will emerge and will live a very happy life for an entire month until it comes to an end. Isn't that amazing? It is an incredible work of God. Now, as far as I can think, the caterpillar turning into a butterfly is a rare instance in nature of something being one thing and turning into something completely different. Creatures may grow bigger, they may grow wings or develop longer tails, but to become something entirely new is unheard of. And as I've been thinking about this, I've thought about what Paul has been writing to the Galatians as we've made our way through the letter. And I've been thinking about the nature of true conversion and what we often assume that might look like. You see, when a person becomes a Christian, when God actually saves a person, the Bible tells us we become a new creation or a new creature. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So you see, we're not a bunch of caterpillars that just get a little bit bigger or change our appearance on the outside a little bit. No, everything changes. It's like becoming a beautiful butterfly through spiritual metamorphosis. It can't be understood in any other way. This is true gospel transformation. And what Paul's been harping on, and I hope we've all taken away from Galatians at this point, is that true gospel transformation is completely and totally different than moral reformation. Moral reformation is external, and it's simply reworking some of our behaviors or or what we say to others to appear as though something drastic has changed about us. But really, in moral reformation, the heart stays the same. Gospel transformation is wholly other than a moral revolution. Gospel transformation doesn't work simply to make us nice people with clean lives and healthy habits. Some of you saw earlier this week a quote that I put on social media. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. I believe it explains this quite well. He writes, A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God... Would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world, and might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption. The redemption always improves people even here and now and will in the end improve them to a gr- degree we cannot yet imagine, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. When we become the people of God, when the gospel comes into your life, when you, when you learn the gospel, and when you see the gospel, and it becomes real to you, it changes you. It makes you honest where you used to not be honest. It makes you bold. It makes you courageous. It makes you unselfish. It changes you from the inside out. It makes you a godly person. And from that point forward, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sins can never separate you from God. Now you're accepted with God, and it is absolute, it is complete. It's based not on your past, but on Christ's past. It's not based on how you live and what you've done, but what Christ has lived and done. It's not based on your performance. It is based on his performance. And as a result, through faith in Jesus Christ alone and nothing else, you're accepted. Not on the level of your surrender or lack of surrender, your level of repentance or lack of repentance, or the level of your purity or lack of purity. It doesn't merit a bit. It is a free gift. And it comes to you now, and you're completely accepted in God's sight through Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate you. That is the gospel. And Paul has addressed this on numerous levels throughout his letter at this point, and we will see it once again. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, in front of you the text for today can be found on page 974. And our first point today that I want us to see in verses 1 through 4 is that if you are seeking to be justified by good works, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Look with me, Galatians 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now the Judaizers, we remember, have taught the Galatians that if they want to be made right with God through Christ, they have to be justified by the law. And Paul is pointing this teaching out in verse 4. They taught that one was made right by God by faith in Christ plus keeping the law and particularly the ceremonial aspects of the law. And here he addresses this issue of circumcision. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, we read Some men were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And the Judaizers borrowed from Moses. They probably also made up some of their own rules according to customs that the enjoyment of God's gift of creation could not be enjoyed. They were saying things like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In other words, what the Judaizers had taught the Galatians and what the Galatians were beginning to believe was that one is saved by faith in Christ and keeping of rules and rituals. They believed in false power. They believed in a false gospel of moral reformation, which Paul has already said is no gospel at all. It's the very thing he's referring to in verse 1 when he says that it is a yoke of slavery. And throughout his letter, he keeps presenting the Galatians with these two options, freedom in Christ or slavery. Freedom is found in the gospel of grace. Slavery is every other alternative we can come up with. Even in those who add seemingly minor or small requirements to faith in Christ. We might hear something and say, yes, that's the gospel. And yes, maybe you're saying we need to do a little bit more. It's not that big of a deal, though. No, Christ... uh, Paul is saying here, there is no compromise. There are no additions. There's no middle ground between the two. There can be no blurring of the distinction. We are either absolutely free in Christ or we are in slavery. So here's the thing. All of us have little ways in which we like to judge others to determine in our minds whether or not they're Christians And oftentimes, these are actually ways that we are adding to the gospel. As individuals, all of us have little things that uh, God has not commanded, God has not forbidden. But we decide on our own that we will emphasize as we look at someone else's life. And you can feel it when maybe someone else says something, or you see something, or hear something from someone who is a Christian, and it, it's something you don't like because it's not your preference, or it doesn't, it doesn't fit your image of what a Christian should do or should look like, not based on the Word of God, but based on your own likes and dislikes. And, and you feel an instant weight in your heart when you hear it or when you see it. You all know what I'm talking about. And if you're not willing to let the gospel stand as it is and allow that person to stand as one who is free in Christ, you are adding to the gospel and you are creating a system of slavery that is no gospel whatsoever. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about issues of clear sin or rebellion. I'm talking about things we contrive in our own minds as being sinful and wrong, even though the Lord has not said so. I hope we understand the distinction. And we can even do this as a church, Now listen, I I hope everyone here loves Ephesus Church as much as I do. We could certainly go around the room and all of us might have something to say in terms of what we hope or wish we, we did more of or that we could change or whatever. But all in all, I assume you're a part of this body because you love the family of faith that God has given us. You want to continue walking together as the people of God. But here's where we have to be very careful we cannot and we must not look at every other church in the world that doesn't do things the way we do them and say, well, they're just not faithful to the word of God. They do things different, so they can't possibly be preaching the gospel. Now, that can be true and sometimes is true. However, this is quite often another way we seek to build a case for justification by works. It's justification by proper church order. It's justification by proper music selection. It's justification by length of sermons. It's justification by children's programs or youth groups or external ministries. And here's what Paul says about all of it. If this is how you think, If this is how you judge, if this is how you determine whether or not there is biblical faithfulness and true gospel transformation taking place, Christ is of no advantage to you. Why? Because you've created a system of slavery. It is a yoke of slavery. You don't know the freedom of Christian freedom. It is at the heart of our theology. We are not justified in any way, shape, or form by our works. We are justified by faith alone. And that is a gift from God. I didn't earn it. I didn't conjure it up. I didn't deserve it. I didn't even want it. But God gave it to me. And as I received it, not as a condition, but as an instrument... I was made able to repent and walk in faithfulness and thankful obedience to what God has commanded. Now here's a common response to all of this. It may be what you're thinking right now. And it's what Paul dealt with himself. It is what Luther famously dealt with in the Reformation. The response is often this. If all you do is emphasize grace and the fact that God loves us despite ourselves and our sin and that he loves me as much today as he will love me in 10,000 years, what's going to happen? It's going to be an open door for anyone and everyone to do as they please, however they please, whenever they please. And let's be honest, that's sort of a common sense response, isn't it? When acceptance is so total that it makes your performance invisible and useless to earn you something, how is there any incentive for excellence? How is there any incentive for sacrifice and selflessness? How is there an incentive to live an obedient, disciplined life? There aren't very many of you who would go to work if your boss told you you need to come and work hard and do your best and help the company look really good in the eyes of the world but um you're not going to earn anything in doing so we need 80 hours from you every two weeks and at the end of those two weeks we're just going to ask for 80 more the next two weeks but you're not going to get a paycheck there's no incentive if you ask me about that i would tell you you're crazy to keep going to work But this is what we're being told and this is why as we think through this we can say we understand it's common sense that someone would hear this constant mantra of Paul to continue to say by grace alone, by grace alone no works of yours are going to earn you anything. There is no incentive to work, is there? Well, it all comes down to motive. And the motives of your heart are going to be very telling as to whether or not you are locked into a system of moral revolution or under the yoke of slavery as an unsaved person. Or if you truly understand gospel transformation and what it means to be a new creature in Christ. This is one of the things that makes living as a Christian, as someone transformed by the gospel, very different than any other element of life. There's nothing like it. And I want you to take note of the fact that Paul never once came into a new place to start a local church and said, now that you're saved, you don't have to obey God at all. Do whatever you want. He never says that. His letters are filled with commands regarding the Lord's standard of obedience for his people, right? But here's the flip side to that. These false teachers, these Judaizers, didn't show up never talking about faith in Christ. In fact, they're very clear that faith in Christ was a necessary element of salvation. So the distinction is not a matter of emphasis, that one's emphasizing grace more than works. But Paul and the false teachers, they both talked about faith and works. So the issue' is not imbalance. The issue is motive. Why am I seeking to obey God? What is the reason for you getting up in the morning and reading the scriptures and praying to God? What is the motive behind coming and gathering for corporate worship each week? What is your motive for loving and serving your neighbor? The motive makes all the difference in the world the motive determines whether or not you understand the difference between being justified and being sanctified. Are you being transformed or are you simply seeking a moral revolution? It's the difference between these two, which means it's the difference between everlasting life with Christ or everlasting condemnation under the wrath of God. When you see you could get into temptation and you can begin to walk in it and move toward it. What is your motivation to stop and to say, no, 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 I want to obey God. That's a good thing, but why are you doing that? You see, the answer to that why is everything in what Paul has been saying. These two different reasons for obedience create two different religions. They create two different personalities. They create two different sets of relationships, two different worldviews, two different churches. Everything hinges on this. Here's the deal. You, You could hear 52 sermons a year with the main focus being that you must obey God. And I could tell you every week to obey God, and it not matter because your obeying God has... Nothing to do with your heart. Why are you seeking to be obedient to God? Let me prove it to you. Paul says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 12, the gospel of salvation has appeared and it teaches us to say no to unrighteousness. That's the point. When confronted with unrighteousness, what is it that is making you say no? It's not not enough to just say no to unrighteousness. I need to know why I should say no. If you obey the law of God for the wrong reasons, you will find yourself under a yoke of slavery it may be a clear indication that you've never undergone the metamorphosis of gospel transformation. You're just learning new tricks instead of actually having been changed. The very end of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian observes, then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. A person can get very close, and yet because they are self-righteously motivated by external moral reformation instead of being changed by gospel transformation, they might miss it altogether. Christ plus anything is always Christ minus And the minute a person adds even the slightest personal merit to faith in Christ, they reveal, Paul is telling us, that they are actually severed from Christ and have fallen from grace. If I add my moral and religious works to God's grace in Christ, then Christ can be of no benefit to me. There can be no mingling of Christ and the law of faith and works of grace and merit. The moment they intersect, the gospel is overthrown. And friends, some of you here this morning think the way of a Christian is all about getting your life cleaned up and acceptable. And if you think you need to get yourself cleaned up before you come to Christ, you're not understanding the gospel and you will never come to Christ. Here's the thing, you will never be good enough for God. God. You and yourself will never be good enough for God. The standard is perfection. And everyone I've ever met will readily admit that they are not perfect. That's why Christ had to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death because we needed a substitute. We need someone to do something for us that we ourselves cannot do. And the gospel is stunning. It's a transforming truth that while I cannot live a perfect life, I am required to live to achieve God's favor on my own. Christ lived that life for me. And by the instrumentality of my faith, his perfection is credited to me. As one who is made right with God, it's not because my works, it's not because of my efforts, it's it's not because I'm better or smarter or more deserving than my neighbor. It's a gracious gift of God and it's given to me so that I can now say I am Christ and he is mine. So when I stand before the judge, and if you are a Christian, when you stand before the judge and he's reading out all the charges against you, when you hear every one of your sins from the very first day of life read out, Christ can stand and say, He is mine. She is mine. I died for them. Their penalty has been paid. And the judge will drop his gavel and say, Not guilty. Case closed. Friends, if you do not count Jesus Christ as your greatest treasure, you will turn to him by faith and he will receive you if you will be humbled, that you will acknowledge your heart as a sinful heart in need of transformation. You don't need moral reformation you need a new heart. You need to be made a new creation. And Jesus will not turn you away and he will not cast you out. Stop trying to clean yourself up because external cleanliness is not enough. It means nothing. You need a metamorphosis. So for those of us who are Christians, what does all of this mean for us? I hope you see that our motivation for obedience doesn't have to come from always being told do this don't do that our motivation is a thankful heart for what God has done and it is a motive of bringing glory to God instead of seeking to live up to a standard of our own making so the second thing Paul shows us in verses five and six this morning the life of the Christian is a life of faith waiting for hope and working through love. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, when we understand what God has done for us and to us in Jesus Christ and our motivation for good works can be rightly oriented because of a true gospel transformation, hope and love become ultimate driving factors in our lives. Now, one of the difficulties here is how we understand the word hope in our usage It doesn't mean the same thing to us as it did to Paul and his Galatian readers. When we think of hope, we're usually thinking of something that we are wishful for, something we're not sure of entirely, but we're really hanging on to our desire, wishing it would pan out. And so it really means, I don't know. I I don't know for sure, but I hope. That's what we say, I hope. But in the New Testament, the word that is always translated as hope to English means absolute certainty. So that's Paul's point in verse 5. There is no uncertainty. And the way he says it here, that we are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness, it sort of hints at this reality of certainty. In other words, Paul is telling us that when we know that we are saved by grace alone, not by our works, but by the finished work of Christ. It fills us with absolute certainty. And when we look to our future, we see what God has secured for us and the beauty of all that He has provided in everlasting communion with Him. It is a firm hope, it is, as we sing, a firm foundation. So here's what that means practically. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Now what do circumcision and uncircumcision mean? Circumcision means moral achievement and outward conformity. Uncircumcision, remember, is in the realm of pagans. The pagans were not circumcised. So it means paganism and moral debauchery. So here's what Paul is saying. Neither is of an advantage to you. And here's how it plays out for us in our daily lives. The next time you do something, this week when you do something that brings glory to God, like bake me a cake or bring me some bacon or something like that, You need to preach to yourself and say, this means nothing for my salvation. God doesn't love you because you did this. You did this because God loves you. A Christian doesn't say God loves me because of how I've done this and I've done that. No, the only reason you do anything of value is because God has first loved you. And he's working in you and he's guiding you by his word and his spirit to bring about the ends that he has designed for his glory. So we need to always bring ourselves to this end because we are so prone not to. What is the first thing we are so prone to think when we do something that is good? We want to love ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and congratulate ourselves for being so spiritual and so godly and such a beacon of light to a lost and dying world. We get very proud. We need to always bring ourselves to the very end, to the bottom, that we might rightly be looking to him and giving him the glory instead of ourselves. That's what it means when Paul says that circumcision means nothing. What I do externally means nothing for my justification. But he also says that uncircumcision means nothing. So that means when you fail, when you fall, when you blow it, When you act like an idiot and do something stupid or selfish, you're likely going to go through a time when you start thinking. And this probably more often than the other. You call yourself a Christian? Maybe you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian. No way. Not the way you did that. If you were a Christian, that would have never happened. You would have never done that. God's not even going to hear your prayers, so don't pray. He's certainly not going to bless you. We've all been there, haven't we? So what do we preach to ourselves then? If I had done the right thing instead of the wrong thing, it would not make me any more fit for his presence. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I'm righteous in the sight of God and will be clothed in that righteousness in every way when he looks upon me as his son. So we repent of our sins and we remind ourselves who we are in Christ and because of Christ. Perhaps that helps us all to understand something even more of the freedom that we see in verse one, the freedom we spoke of last week. We are free to say, I am in Christ. And because I am in Christ, even my most vile sins are forgiven and washed clean. They don't condemn me, and they certainly don't define me. So the sin in our lives happens... Because God is showing our need to continually rely on him, continue to turn back to Christ and his righteousness. And it happens to humble us and it brings us low that we can look at him more and more and more. If you spend time every single day filling your heart with reminders of who you are in Christ, you will be reassured of our hope. You will be freed from the paralysis that comes from either mindset the mindset of circumcision that drives us to try harder and to do better so that we can earn something, or the mindset of uncircumcision that never sees forgiveness and identity in Jesus Christ. Now, the other piece to this is what Paul says in verse 6. In the end, what counts is faith working through love. Charles Spurgeon tells a great story told, he's not around anymore, that highlighted the fact that unless you know you are completely saved by grace, you have never done a single thing for God. Whatever you've done, in whatever way you've sought to be obedient, however you've tried to do what God says, by your own self-determined will, instead of by grace, through faith, you've actually never done anything for God at all. If you're filled with fear, if you're constantly up and down, if you feel like God hasn't loved me because I'm not good enough, I'm trying so hard, I just don't know if He will ever love me. Here's what Spurgeon wrote Once there was a gardener, and he grew a carrot. It was a huge carrot. And he took it to his king, and he said, This is the greatest carrot I have ever grown. And I want to give it to you because you are the king that I love. You're a great king, and I want you to have this as a token of my love. And as he walked away, the king said, I see how much you love me. So let me give you another whole acre next to your garden so you can be a much greater gardener than you are now. And the gardener went home rejoicing there was a nobleman at the court who saw what had happened. And he looked, and he saw, and he thought, my goodness, if you can get a whole acre of land for a carrot, what might you get with a horse? So the next day, he brought a horse, and he says, I raise horses, O sovereign king, and this is the greatest horse that I have ever raised. I want to give it to you as a token of my esteem and my love. The king discerned the man's heart, and he said, Thank you. I will take the horse. And he walked away with it. The nobleman, confused, looked at the king, and the king turned and said, The gardener gave me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. Now here's Spurgeon's point. If you have ever done anything in your life for God, you thought in order to get yourself into heaven, you never did a single thing for God. If you're never doing it for the joy of who He is and for the delight of who He is, you're not doing it for Him. You're doing it for yourself. It's yourself you're feeding. You've never done a single thing for God and you're, you're not doing anything for the poor either. You're using the poor and you're using God when you're seeking all of these things for your own benefit, not because you delight in and treasure Christ as greatest and most ultimate. And so we end up using others, using them for who they are in themselves and we're not loving him for who he is in himself. Only when you see the reason you can be saved is that God looked at you and was willing to lose his son for you, not because of anything you could possibly give him, then will your faith work through love. God has loved you. He has made you a new creation in Christ if you are in him because God loved you and God simply chose you. To make you a new creation in Christ that's it and he determined that his son would die for you and that his son would live up to a standard that you could not fulfill and his son would bear the penalty that you were supposed to bear because he chose not to condemn you forever And only once you recognize all of this to be true and worthy of all of your life and all of your love and all of your joy and all of your satisfaction, you will never do a single thing that is good or for God. You've never done anything out of love until you know you're a sinner absolutely saved by grace. You've never done anything in freedom until you see you are sinner saved absolutely by grace. So I hope you get it. We have a great hope in what God has promised us. And when we see who we are and what God has done in rescuing us and setting us free in Christ, we will joyfully, we will faithfully walk with him and for him with great joy in who he is and not what we can do. So we're not motivated by what we earn or what we gain from doing what we do. We're motivated by love because we have been loved. And when that's the case, when we move into the world sacrificially and selflessly and with strength and courage because we have been transformed by the gospel, in Jesus Christ... We can walk through all the times we seek to live by circumcision, or we can look to all the times we failed in uncircumcision, and we can say, Christ is enough because I have been transformed by the gospel. When we are completely new creatures in Christ, it's why we eagerly long for the hope that is set before us. It's when our faith works through love. This is when we recognize that we are who we are in Christ alone, apart from our doing and not doing in relationship to the law. That's good news, brothers and sisters. That's worth rejoicing in. And may God be glorified. Let's pray together. Father, we are filled with gratefulness for who we are in Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that you would help us to understand our own hearts in the times when we seek to live by external factors for our own praise and our own glory that you would remind us that the only reason we ever do anything of good, of worth, is because we've been loved by you. May we repent of our goodness and rest in Christ and his finished work for us. And when we fail to live up to what you have called us to in obedience as your children, as we break your law and as we walk as our own Gods as our own makers of the way. We pray God that we would preach again to ourselves. My identity is not in what I have failed to do and that you would not love us any more had we have done the right thing. But it all serves to bring me to the end of myself that I may be humbled in repentance, that I may be encouraged in my faith that I can stand and walk in what Christ has done for me because my identity is in him alone. So Father, when we seek to achieve moral perfection on our own or when we are fully aware of our failures, we pray that we always turn to the only source of life who is Christ Jesus. I pray, God, for those who are here this morning who seek a changed life through moral reformation. Would you help them to see their inability to live up to even their greatest desires and that they would rest in Christ alone, that you would call them to yourself, that you would transform them by the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would be glorified forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.